Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. The first item is big news that was going on in the Elixir community. It got a lot of people talking. It was around an announcement from Brex, which is an Elixir-based company that provides a service of company credit cards. And they announced that they are shifting from Elixir to a Kotlin-first approach for building all new server-side code. This is a bigger topic that we're going to come back to at the end of the news after we have had a chance to talk about all the other smaller news items. So let's move on. Smaller news item number one, LiveView <laughs> 0.16 was released, has some breaking changes, some big changes here. There's the Sigil H, which deprecates Sigil L. There is the new Phoenix component to make more functional components or function-based components. Yeah, I gave LiveView 0.16 a try the other day. I was going through the change log and identifying these breaking changes one of the things I liked is they said that we understand migrating all templates from Sigil L to Sigil H can be a daunting task. Therefore, we plan to support Sigil L in live use for a long time. However, we can't do the same for stateful live components. Some important client-side features and optimizations will depend on the Sigil H. Therefore, our recommendation is to replace the Sigil L by Sigil H first in live components, particularly in stateful live components. So that was one of the things I saw is that, yeah, it, it still works. They're giving people a lot of time. So you don't have to go through all of your .leex templates and get them all converted over and maybe change some markup, especially if you're using forms, because this changes the form markup. So it's a bigger change. But they're trying to be very understanding, very slow about it. So giving people a time to move to it. But the other thing that I saw was this adds the new Heeks templates. So these HEX templates are pretty cool because it says that they validate the markup in the template and provide smarter change tracking as well as syntax conveniences to make it easier to build composable components. So these are exciting changes. And along with this, there's under development a VS Code plugin called VS Code Phoenix that will have the syntax highlighting available for those Sigil H's and HEX file extensions. For NeoVim tree sitter users, there's also some great work um, being done to add support for HEEX as well. Uh, earlier last week, we talked about Surface support being PR'd into uh, NVim tree sitter. So this week is the same thing, but with, with HEEX. So remember, Surface is going to start using the F sigil now. HEEX is going to start using the H sigil. Just a reminder what tree sitter is. It's that progressive syntax parser and tokenizer, which allows for much faster syntax highlighting and a lot smarter about the language itself uh, as well. So speaking of all that, this isn't the only place where HEEX is going to be used. Uh, Elixir LS might also start using it. And Elixir LS 0.8 was released. And this release, quote, adds HEEX and Surface file support to Elixir LS. But for syntactical support for VS Code users, uh, we'll want to wait for the uh, the GitHub repo that we talked about earlier, the VS Code-Phoenix, which is still under development. Elixir LS, by the way, is, it's, itself doesn't contain syntax support. That's generally provided by the editor-specific extension. That's a lot of good improvements coming to Elixir LS, a lot smarter about your code, and now here soon about HEEX and file, uh, Surface files. Yeah, so when I was trying that out, I found that using the Elixir LS 0.8 release really did help because when I was using a Sigil H block of markup, 
there are some changes that we have to make with how we embed IDs and things that the syntax changes for the HTML. And without doing the Elixir LS update, it was just saying there's an error with this sigil H and the whole block, like not identifying where in the block. And after doing the update, you could tell that Elixir LS became smarter about the Heeks templates. And it was able to point to where in the template, this line, this text. And so that really helped me identify those. Uh, but yeah, it, at the same time, I really value having the template highlighting, the syntax highlighting. And so I think I'm probably just going to hold off a little bit until that VS Code Phoenix extension is available and finished and, and ready to go, because then it'll just kind of make the whole developer experience a lot smoother. And following on with the Elixir LS release, there was an Erlang LS 0.18 released with a number of improvements. One of those was around the debugger adapter protocol. And so David, you were telling us what that meant. Yeah, that's that's a protocol around uh, standardizing how to break, you know, pause in execution, right? Look at variables around um, in the current scope of of where you you've you have paused execution. Uh, so anyway, some good work there done uh, in Erlang LS. I don't, personally don't ever use this, so I really need to start using it. <laughs> that's a pretty cool superpower. I'm just glad that it's there because there are some libraries that are used for the whole Beam community that maybe they started in Elixir and then they moved, like Telemetry was one, and it moved into being Erlang, so it could be used by everybody. So I'm glad that we have the developer tooling being brought up along all the like Beam languages. Just wanted to mention that the book Concurrent Data Processing in Elixir was released on Pragprog. It's been getting a lot of good feedback and comments on the in the community. There's also a book club reading through this book right now if you're interested, and we'll drop a link to that. Uh, also in the news, Yworks, an Elixir company, uh, Elixir consultancy rather, has an open source library called Boom that allows your Phoenix application to send notifications whenever an exception is raised. So you may be used to this in the, in the sense of like AppSignal or Honey Badger or something like that. This is allowing you to get a custom backend, right? A roll your own kind of backend, right? So it'll it'll just send a notification to wherever you need it to go. By default, it includes an email and a webhook notifier, but you can obviously implement your your custom ones. It was inspired by the exception notification gem that provides similar uh, functionality uh, for for Rack and Rails applications. There's a PR uh, that includes a nice little architecture flowchart. So if you're interested in, in what this is and how it works, check out these links. Another fun example I saw showing how to crop a photo using the cropper.js library with LiveView. It was really nice because it's just part of a live upload example project. So if you're wanting to see how do I work with live uploads, it was added to that. So you can see just how simple it is to get the hooks in there. So you can have that same kind of feature and experience in your app. Next up, Slab open sourced a operational transformed library that pairs nicely with Quill, the JavaScript collaborative editor. Um, They also released a blog article explaining their usage and what they use it for. It's an interesting read, and it's actually interesting. I noticed that uh, LiveBook has their own operational transforms module that they kind of created from also this um, JavaScript Quill library. They apparently wrote a bunch about how they do the OT library, and so it was interesting that they're kind of working on similar things. So we'll kind of see maybe maybe LiveBook will switch over to using it or. Maybe not. Yeah, it was episode 48 where we talked with a developer who's at Slab about Ecto Associations. 
we did learn a little bit more about what goes on behind the scenes there. But if you haven't used Slab, like we use it at work, and it is really cool how they have this collaborative document editing thing that works. It's a very Google Doc-esque kind of thing. And now with this open sourcing of this, it's something that, hey, maybe that's something we can add to your own project. That's it for the news. So for today, we wanted to have a discussion to talk about some current events that we saw happening in the Elixir community space. There was a lot of discussion around the company Brex, which we talked about at the top of the news, where they announced that they were switching to a Kotlin-first language choice for doing backend services, as opposed to Elixir, which they have been doing. And so the first point that we kind of really need to address is, why are we even talking about this? Why is this valuable to talk about at all? And I just remember a long time ago when I was in the Ruby community and still kind of fresh in the Ruby community, whenever I heard about a big company saying that they're moving away from Ruby, I felt kind of threatened by it. Like, am I making a wrong choice for being in this language? Am I wrong for going after Ruby? Is there something I'm not seeing? So I think it's valuable to talk about this for people who are in that same situation. They're coming new to Elixir and they maybe are still unsure because there's a big investment of time and focus whenever you learn any major language or framework. Anything that's major and, and different like that, you spend a lot of time on it and you don't, you don't want to get it wrong, right? So I think it's valuable that we can talk about this, get some perspective on it. What does this actually mean for Elixir, for, for us individually, for you guys, for myself? So coming back to the Ruby idea, I remember Twitter, you know, they would have the big whale fail kind of thing because their Twitter was famously started off with Ruby on Rails and they had some scaling issues. Well, Twitter operates at a different scale just in general, right? And so, oh no, they're moving away from, from Ruby on Rails. And then GitHub, you know, they started switching a lot of their backend services away from Ruby on Rails. A lot of their UIs, as I understand, it still has a lot of parts that are still Rails and that's cool. And so we have the benefit of hindsight when we're thinking about Ruby or anything like that. And was it a bad choice to do Ruby on Rails for them? I would say no, because it got them off the ground, got them profitable, validating an idea quickly. So it served a great purpose. They're just operating at a different scale. So it's for them, it makes sense it, that, it, that it would matter differently to do backend services in a different way. Yeah, I think it comes down to like that concept of not pre-optimizing too early on, right? It's like, would you choose a language and all of these coding paradigms and patterns to get you off the ground really fast and get you successful as fast as possible while you have very limited amount of funding? Or would you choose to optimize for what you could become 10 years later and choose something that might be slower getting you off the ground, optimized for a high number of engineering, high throughput, none of which you will have for a decade? And it's like, I would choose the first one, right? I would choose to get off the ground first and to have enough funding to become profitable in hopes that my code base can be thrown away later in hopes that I have enough resources later that I could do that and rewrite if I want to. Sure, but I'd rather be off the ground than never had made it off the ground in the first place. But this is where Elixir is interesting because I feel like you could get off the ground fast with it and you could go to scale with it too. I feel the same way. Even if there is a point at which you do need to do something different to scale, maybe like the WhatsApp scale, right? Where billions of users, that'd be an awesome problem to have, right? Especially if they're paying customers. But I feel so much more confident with Elixir being able to be productive, 
rapidly build something out, and then go to scale, handling a lot more load and with fewer servers and less complexity and, and doing it really well. Honestly, I've never gotten a service that's, you know, a successful service that's gotten to a point where Elixir was not big enough for it. There's really like two main things that I would say about the Bricks situation here. Any code base is going to have cruft that's been around for a long time, especially if it was your code base that you used to get off the ground in your startup days. Like in your startup days, unfortunately, we don't always take the best care of architecting things really well, going back and rewriting when domain changes. Like we're just trying to do what we can to become profitable and make it. Any code base that goes through that phase and makes it to a large company with lots of employees is going to have a hard time refactoring. And like they brought up a bunch of points, like it's hard to do this and that. Of course it is. Like every big code base I've ever been on is hard to do that. It wasn't because of the language. And I mean, we could keep talking about that, but I think that that's just kind of how it is sometimes. But if you've worked on a code base that started in an MVP and became like hundreds of employees and it was still beautiful after that, like I'd like to know what your secrets are. Yeah. Another challenge is that you're bringing in, especially if you're growing fast, you're bringing in talent and developers from lots of different places, lots of different backgrounds. They're not coming with existing Elixir experience or Ruby on Rails experience or whatever your framework is, they're coming from lots of places. And they're going to write code that isn't idiomatic, that it doesn't really kind of fit in well, or they didn't know about this other core feature that's just part of the language or these core parts of your application that they're just not using. So you do end up with a lot of that cruft. It just happens organically. The only other thing that I would say about this situation is, and I think Chris Keithley, he put it out there on the internet, so I'm just... I'm not even going to ask for permission to quote him because it's just public information anyways. <laughs> but like he said it well, and this is kind of how I feel too. It's like he says, the true reason for a company leaving language X for language Y is overwhelmingly because someone high ranking enough wanted to. I kind of believe in that. It's like, unfortunately, things are really emotional in technology. Like we don't always make the most rational decisions. And it often just comes down to enough people with enough power feel a certain way. And so it happens. And that's just kind of how it happens usually. Yeah, we had a great discussion recently with Joel Kemp in episode 59. He was at uh, Spotify, but we were talking about the social aspects of this. And I really liked Chris Keithley's quote there as well, where it really is, to me, it's, it's a socio-technical problem because I've seen it personally in my own career. Like one of the companies I worked at, there was uh, several divisions and our team was a much smaller group and we were using Elixir and the rest of the company wasn't. And a high-ranking VP that was kind of over the other side, the other division, which was much larger, he had like the ear of the CEO and he would just kind of keep talking to him. You know, the problem that they're having with whatever is because they're not using Java. And he would just kind of keep saying these things because he believed that Java was the best solution, the best language. And any problems that we had, because we were a team of four people and they had like a team of 15 or 20, any problems that we had was because it wasn't his language preference. And the CEO, he doesn't know any better. He's not a technical person. So it becomes a politics and social thing of presenting an opinion or something that you have a high bias on this, and you're presenting this as a technical truth. And I think that happens a lot, you know, unintentionally, because we truly believe 
this thing. We're, we're biased ourselves. You know, I'm biased towards Elixir. I've seen that happen myself. And so what in our situation, what was interesting is the president or the CEO would sometimes come to us and say, kind of question us about, you know, like, are, are we doing the right thing using this, this language? And we'd always have to kind of defend it. But when it came down to it, our performance, like we were able to do more with our four person team than this 15 and 20 person team could do. And whenever they had to, a big company, a big client was going to come in and they really wanted to get this client, they would come to us to help build integrations that they couldn't get done in time because we were faster and we could build it and it was reliable. And they kind of selectively wouldn't remember that. <laughs> that They keep coming to us to solve the problems that they can't do because we're faster and solid. So anyway, it was just... I've seen it myself that it's, it's a social problem. It's politics. That's people pushing their own biases to say, I believe technology X is better and you should be using that. I'm totally down with, you know, most of the arguments here is like, yeah, I, it, it's disappointing. You know, I, I felt a little hurt, not, not personally, obviously, but you know, a little bummed out that Brex is, uh, dismissing Elixir as a, as a startup only kind of a language, right? Uh, and then it had challenges with a learning curve, apparently maintainability, uh, blamed some stuff on the, on the ecosystem and, t- and community for that, right? They had they, apparently maybe a little bit of scalability and development speed, like all the, all these things you can have in any language. But there are some kernels of truth here that I don't want to dismiss too hastily. One of the things that they liked about Kotlin was a type system. Well, we know that Elixir doesn't have a type system. The best we've got is Dialyzer. And we know that that's not a perfect solution. Now, they talked about the ecosystem. That's true for a lot of languages, but, you know, Elixir's still on the smaller side. There's orders of magnitude larger ecosystems of in the Ruby community and in, in any JVM community. We're not going to check that box. And because of that, that also means that you might have to write more of your own libraries there. That takes a different kind of engineer to do that, right? If, if there's not a gRPC library in your language of choice, that means you have to become a gRPC expert. That's not a task that, that everyday engineers, you know, are, are willing to take. They've got a feature in front of them that they have to implement. They don't want to do the, the core work there to get gRPC for the language off the ground, or at least not for the whole language, but for themselves at least, right? Performance, uh, I'm dismissing that. That's that's a that's a load of bull right there. But um, <laughs> modern language features, I don't understand this one either. Like, if you're talking about IDEs, then yeah, sure, um, that doesn't bother. I'm I'm in Vim. Like, that's that's fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you get a language server, that's just, that's just, that's great. And Elixir is is there for that. Like, uh, most languages are there for that. So like point by point here, it's really not worth like going through it, I don't think. So it, I think, yeah, the, the, the big decision is largely emotional. But there are some kernels of truth here that you can't just dismiss as, as if they're untrue. And the two that I want to stick there are, is type specs, right? Types, right? We don't have it. That's fine. If you absolutely have it and you believe, you know, to your core as a developer from your experience, which I cannot deny that types are going to help you refactor systems, Hey, go for a language that takes types, you know, that, that has types, just do it. I personally have not found it to be incredibly satisfying. That's fine. You know, uh, engineers are made up of a lot of different people and subcultures of those people. That's fine. Uh, we can coexist, uh, and, and, and it's going to be wonderful to do that. Uh, but the other part is, uh, hiring. I've heard this repeated several times over the years. 
Elixir is a smaller community. There's orders of magnitude more people that are learning Java, you know, in schools. And I'm going to use air quotes here, air quote, enterprise systems. All right. So if if your goal is to hire 50 percent of your staff from Amazon and Google and other huge, large Java shops that have, quote, proven themselves as big data, big scale and all that kind of stuff. So obviously they, quote, have it right. That is your pool that you're going to be choosing from. And that's the that's the expertise you're going to be choosing from. So, yeah, of course, you're going to want to you're going to want to focus on the JVM because that's 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 who you want to hire. You want to hire a thousand engineers, you're going to have a, a, a much easier time hiring a thousand Java engineers. So that's fine for those companies. If that is their goal is to explode in growth. Great. Go for it. I just don't prefer that. I prefer the caliber of person that has chased after a language like Elixir that is willing to get into the core bits of important libraries like gRPC, like Flow, like XAWS, you know, like all of these things, like build it yourself. It's okay to build it yourself. It's great to build it yourself. You, you win if you build it yourself because you now you can understand the cores of how that stuff works and you've served the community. You've done a lot more, you know, than just for yourself and your company. You've done more for the community as well. That's the people that I want. And, and so anyone that wants to, you know, go after other languages, that's great. They can do that. That's their choice. You know, they, they have favored other trade-offs. And in my experience, I have not often come across a decision that said, I regret choosing Elixir for this. Every Elixir engineer that I've, I've come across, like they, they love the language, they love the community, and they're typically the people that dig in deep. And those are the folks that I want to work with. I really love that perspective of we're interested in the quality of people who come to Elixir. I've seen that myself where one of the companies I worked at, another company that was in the area where we worked, laid off a whole group, a whole team. And this startup hired that whole team. These guys were all Scala developers. And we're going to teach them Elixir, right? That, that's what was happening here. And what happened was, is they're like, okay, yeah, we get to keep working. We get to keep working together. We like each other. But then you, you bring in a whole group of people who all say, we should just be using Scala because that's what we know, right? We're proficient at it. We know how to do that. And like, why, why can't we just use Scala for this? And I think that comes back to David's point. Like if, you're, if the pool that you're hiring from have skills that are already in this other area, then it does give you a business benefit to not have to train because they're already trained. They're coming to you pre-trained for that tooling. And so I think there's, that makes a business sense, right? To just say, we want to operate at this scale. We have a pool of people here and this is what they know. But I saw the same thing with Scala. And you know, we were able to stick with Elixir, but I saw that happen where it's like, you know, we're all coming in together. We want to do, we should be doing our chosen preference tool. But coming back to your other discussion point that you made, David, was about the type system. And that really was the main point I saw from their blog post is talking about Elixir not having static types. And I've worked in languages, uh, specifically .NET languages like C Sharp, where there are static types and the editor, the IDE, can do a lot because of those static types. There are refactoring shortcuts where you can just say refactor this thing and it will catch everywhere that it's referenced and rename it and, and reorganize arguments and whatever. So you can get a lot of benefit from that. I've seen that. 
So I know that's, that's a real thing. I've also seen a lot of pain from static type languages that don't fit the way I prefer to work. So a lot of it comes down to preference. I, I totally acknowledge that too. This isn't the only post, right? There's, there's another post that is way, way less careful about what they say and a little bit more bombastic and, and they're into being bombastic and go them, I guess. But the things that bug me about these kind of posts, though, is that you really don't need to broadcast that you're a Kotlin first company. Who gives a crap? Like, just be appreciative that, <laughs> that there are lots of great languages to choose from and that you love uh, I, I've always said before, like, be, if you're a polyglot, you're you're winning. Like just just be a polyglot. Like I, I prefer Elixir. I typically choose Elixir, but it's great to know other languages. It's great to know JavaScript. It's great to know Ruby. If you want to know Kotlin, it, it, learn that too. You don't have to position your company to be a mono culture, and that's I think that's the mistake. Because the developers in a language can have a culture along with that. It's a, it can be a wide culture, right? Ruby is known for being weird. Python is known for being data science-y, right? Java is going to be known for Amazon-y, Google-y kind of people, right? Traditional computer science kind of stuff. C-sharp, you're going to be Windows people, right? Like, uh, or .NET, rather. Um, so, yeah, it, it comes with it, a culture of people. I tend to identify with the Elixir culture, right? But when you don't want that monoculture, like that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't move society forward, you know, together. If if you are constantly seeking to be that one culture and to envelop everyone into your one culture, multicultural, you know, appreciation, you know, on the language level is a good thing. So, so the, the, the post is like, we're a Kotlin first company is like, uh, fantastic. Good, good for you. The mistake you're making, I think, is that you're you're choosing to exclude other cultures here. You're, you're excluding other kinds of teachings and other kinds of patterns from other languages at this point, and that's going to hurt you in the long run. I think, right? Business wise, I, I I get it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The easier to hire for that kind of stuff, but culture wise, I think that's going to be a, a losing bet. But it may not matter. <laughs> no, I don't know. It, it trade offs. List long list of trade offs. That's how I see it. I guess. That was an interesting discussion. I'm glad we could kind of just talk about it together and hear your perspectives because I, I value hearing what you guys think about these things too. One of the things I kind of came away with is that oftentimes people will, like from my own personal experience I shared before and just what we've talked about here, that people claim technical reasons all the time, but almost always the stated reasons are rationalizations after they've already made a decision. So they're trying to justify, you know, here are some facts to back up the decision we've already made. And there may be totally valid business reasons for Brex to make that choice. And that may be the right choice for their business. I don't think that means that Kotlin is better than Elixir, like from some objective sense, because I also know of companies that are moving from Kotlin to Elixir. So it's not like Kotlin is the panacea. It's like, oh, everyone should be doing Kotlin. It's like, no, there, there are other reasons. There's business, there's politics, there's uh, you know, you super value a, st uh, a static type system. So maybe that is what makes the most sense for you. But personally, I have seen enough change in just my career with companies coming in and coming out of whatever technology I cared about that it doesn't threaten me. I don't feel like, oh no, I've made a bad choice. It's like, I've been in this long enough. I know it's like, no, I, I value the qualities that Elixir brings, that the beam gives me, because I felt so much pain from 
all the problems I've dealt with it with other languages where I didn't have those. And that's why I came to Elixir. And I still have that. And I don't know of a better solution. I think Rex is making a fine decision for themselves. I'm thankful for the contributions that they, they made to the community, especially early on and sponsoring, you know, some Elixir core members. That was, that was really, really helpful. They've done us a great service. So I, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. And if they, they choose to, to move forward with a, with a different language because they've, they found out things that they, they prefer, you know, in the, in the list of trade-offs, like a type system and a bigger hiring pool. Hey, go for the, go for it. Um, I'm happy for them. But yeah, like, like you said, Mark, with your experience, I have not found something better for myself and for any company that I would ever start or any project that I would ever start. I've, I've not found a solution that's better than Elixir. But, you know, you, dear listener, are listening to the Elixir, Think, Thinking Elixir <laughs> podcast. So, of course, we're going to be a little bit biased there, but we have like real reasons why we believe in this. It's not it's not just because I like the color blue and that's why I'm on this, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but I'm glad you brought up that point about the contributions Brex has made. Jose Valim shared how Brex sponsored Dashbit to do some of that work, which was bringing some of those semi-typed things in a function declaration. If you did a pattern match where you specify the name of the struct, then within that, you can get some of those static type feeling kind of checks in that function. So that's great. I value that. I'm happy to have that. It's kind of like a progressive type system in a way. But I'm happy to have that. And so I do appreciate all of their contributions. Yeah, I'm sad to see that they made that choice. But you know, I, I must presume I don't have any inside knowledge to what they're dealing with and what situations they have. But uh, I presume it makes rational sense for them, or at least uh, those people who have the ability to choose the course for the ship. Yep, we're grateful for them. I wish that all companies who used Elixir were contributing to Elixir like they did, right? Like Elixir would be so much further along. So good for them. Thanks for everything that they did. Good luck. Happy journeys. <laughs> we'll always be here in case you need to come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to get your guys' thoughts and input. And, you know, dear listener, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any thoughts on that, you can always message us, show at thinkingelixir.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter at thinkingelixir. And then in the show notes, you can see uh, our individual Twitter accounts as well. So you can contact us. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Uh-huh.